You're listening to the fifth episode of Facing It, a podcast about climate grief, eco-anxiety, and what it means to be human in the age of climate crisis. Dr. Jennifer Atkinson will guide you on a journey through the emotional toll of ecological loss and mass extinction, and offer strategies for moving from despair to action in our fight for a livable future. This series is produced by Intrasonics UK with the music and sound recordings of Cryon. If you're part of the climate movement, you've probably had the same unsettling experience as me. You hear an activist giving the same speech they gave five years ago when they said, we only have five years left, or whatever number they used. And now today they're up there calling for a new deadline, urging everyone to rise up and seize this moment, our last best chance to save the world. If the experience makes you feel like you're caught in Groundhog Day, you should know the speaker feels it too. In fact, if you catch that person at a bar after their talk, sometimes they'll admit they've fallen into despair from saying the same thing year after year, telling people to keep hope alive when they themselves have lost it. I know why people who've privately become pessimistic still project hope in public. As a speaker and educator in the climate movement, I feel immense pressure to rally those around me using positive messages, especially when I'm working with young people filled with idealism. So many scientists and teachers and activists say the same thing about wanting to inspire others to join the effort. But in recent years, I've lost track of the number who've admitted that what they tell students or reporters is much rosier than how they've come to feel themselves. Some public figures have given up on living this double life. After the alarming discovery that Arctic seafloor carbon was at risk of setting off runaway climate change, leading climatologist Jason Box famously tweeted, we're fucked. And you can understand why anyone following environmental news comes to this point of despair not just the scientists running those terrifying projections. Go to a climate rally or tune into a podcast like this, and you'll hear that marine ecosystems are collapsing, that Antarctica hit the highest temperature ever recorded, Siberia on fire, hurricanes wiping communities off the map, and this is just a preview of what's to come. In four of Earth's previous mass extinctions, including the great dying of the Permian Age, where as much as 90% of life was wiped out, it was temperature rise from greenhouse gases that triggered the die-off. But even then, the CO2 content of the atmosphere grew at maybe one-tenth the pace we're seeing today. What makes us think we can cook our atmosphere at a greater scale and hundreds of times faster, but somehow get a different ending to this story? Climate activists endlessly recite these terrifying facts, but the weird thing is how those talks and documentaries usually end. We're told that there's still time to act, that our actions can make a difference, and that we must have hope, even though we were just told a story that sounds pretty hopeless. When you look at that disconnect between fact and rhetoric, you start to wonder about hope. Hope can feel like a throwaway term, a cheap neon sign we dutifully switch on at the end of the presentation. It's led many to ask if hope is counterproductive. What if it prevents us from seeing the real terrors of our situation, or makes us passive, or sets us up for heartbreaks that discourage us from trying again after setbacks? 
You hear these questions all the time in the climate movement, but those reservations are not the whole story. Hope is deeply complicated and shows up in different forms when times are hard. For better or worse, everyone has something to say about hope. There are the well-known lines of Martin Luther King Jr. who said, if you lose hope, you lose the vitality that keeps moving. You lose the courage to be, that quality that helps you go on in spite of it all. And so today, I still have a dream. Or maybe you remember that Emily Dickinson poem from school, that hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. Or the quote on your Winston Churchill coffee mug, or the inspirational lines on your refrigerator magnets. There are also the skeptics who say that hope is a psychological distraction, a way of deferring action onto the future. Climate writer Mary Heglar says that when you look at all the suffering and tragedies around us, rosy optimism lies somewhere between immature and sociopathic, although this doesn't dismiss us from doing the work. And many of us heard Greta Thunberg's speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where she said she doesn't want us to have hope. She said, adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope, but I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if our house is on fire. Because it is. All of this matters because how we feel about whether our actions can shape the world to come is a deciding factor in whether we act to bring about that future. So in this episode, we'll explore the complex role of hope, the good, the bad, the delusional, and just maybe a version of hope that makes way for radical transformation. The case for hope seems simple at first glance. We want hope because it inspires people to work toward the very future they imagine in their most hopeful moments. Norman Cousins even said, the capacity for hope is the most significant fact of life. It provides human beings with a sense of destination and the energy to get started. But others say, not so fast. What if hope leads to inaction? What if it lets us off the hook by luring us into a false sense of comfort that everything will turn out in the end? Some go even further and argue that hope is dangerous. When we hope for something that's impossible, we can unintentionally support oppressive systems. These critics often draw on the scholar Lauren Berlant, who developed the concept of cruel optimism. One example of cruel optimism is the American dream, where low-paid workers with little job security buy into the promise that hard work results in wealth and success. But the fact is, our economic system is rigged, and widening inequality shows that for the vast majority, class mobility is out of reach. What makes this cruel, rather than just tragic, is that hope itself is at the root of the problem. Instead of challenging a rigged system, many poor people invest in a myth that makes them more vulnerable to exploitation. In the case of climate change, you find cruel optimism in the hope that technology or geoengineering will solve all our problems. These dreams of a technological fix are incredibly tempting because they allow us to have our cake and eat it too. 
Imagine if we could save the planet without giving up driving and flying and eating piles of meat while wearing disposable fashion ordered through same-day delivery. But this hope excuses us from facing the larger problem that our consumer way of life is inherently destructive. Investing hope in some innovation that would preserve the existing system lures us away from the need to confront our sense of entitlement, our view of nature as a resource, and our belief that consumption is the path to fulfillment. And this techno-optimism is cruel because it allows privileged consumers in the developed world to preserve a way of life that causes disproportionate suffering to marginalized communities, people of color, and the global South. Within the environmental movement, one of the most prominent critics of hope is Derek Jensen, who set off a storm back in 2006 with his essay, Beyond Hope. Here's what he wrote. Frankly, I don't have much hope, but I think that's a good thing. Hope is what keeps us chained to the system, the conglomerate of people and ideas that is causing the destruction of the earth. Hope serves the needs of those in power as surely as belief in a distant heaven. Hope is really nothing more than a secular way of keeping us in line. Jensen's whole argument arises from the particular way he defines hope. As he put it, hope is a longing for a future condition over which you have no agency it means you are essentially powerless. That's why Jensen also wrote that losing hope doesn't mean we lie down and give up. In fact, the opposite may be true. He described how his mother stayed in an abusive marriage for years while clinging to the possibility that Jensen's father would change. And only after she gave up hope did she pick up and leave. He also cites the Jews who participated in the Warsaw Ghetto uprising once it became clear that they were doomed and had nothing left to lose. Other scholars have looked at the common trait among psychopaths who control people they've abducted by giving them little glimmers of hope. But when their victims lose hope, they're no longer controllable. The whole argument boils down to the vulnerability of hopefulness. Michael Nelson has written that to be motivated by hope is to be stripped naked, to be vulnerable, to be disempowered, but to be motivated by a sense of obligation is to put on a Kevlar bodysuit. In this state, your motivations aren't susceptible to external events. You simply do what you know is right, regardless of how it may turn out. A lot of activists and students I've worked with find this perspective empowering. Suddenly, the hopelessness they saw as their weak spot turns out to be a shield. They identify with Jensen when he says, abandoning hope makes him more willing to fight the system. As he wrote, a wonderful thing happens when you give up hope, which is that you realize you never needed it in the first place. But what if the way these arguments define hope is too narrow to tell the whole story? Isn't there more than one way to hope? What the anti-hope proponents seem to be critiquing here isn't hope so much as hopefulness, an optimism we feel when our preferred outcome seems reasonably likely. If we need signs of probability before we act, they're right to critique it, because it means we probably won't step up when we think the odds are bad. But there's another view of hope that's less about future outcomes and more about the present, about who we are in this moment and what we decide to do with our lives as events unfold. This is what Joanna Macy calls active hope. Like gardening or tennis, 
active hope is a practice. As Macy puts it, it is something we do rather than have. And so in a fundamental sense, this version of hope is the opposite of the passivity Jensen describes. Active hope is about directly participating to bring about what we hope for. And since active hope, as Macy defines it, doesn't require our optimism, she writes that we can apply it even in areas where we feel hopeless. The guiding impetus here is intention. We choose what we aim to bring about. Rather than weighing our chances and proceeding only when we feel hopeful, she writes, we focus on our intention and let that be our guide. All of these insights helped me reconsider some of my most sacred assumptions as a climate educator. I started my career as a passionate proponent of hope. Even though I had private doubts, I dragged my broken heart into the room each day and promised students that what they did mattered, that our collective efforts may already be turning the tide in some invisible way. After a few years, I started to question that message, and my teaching became more critical of hope even asking students to consider if it was part of the problem. I was still committed to the work, but my tone and messaging began to change. About that time, which was six or seven years into teaching college, I started hearing back from the first batch of students I'd taught in my earliest years of broadcasting radical hope. They'd since graduated and gotten jobs in environmental or activist fields, and were sending updates telling me they'd been motivated to do that work because their professors and peers convinced them that they could make a difference. Most of all, their letters said they'd been inspired by seeing other people engaged in this historic struggle, fighting on the side of life and beauty and diversity. That's the side they wanted to join too. It all confused the hell out of me because looking back on those early years of working with students, I'd felt like a fraud feeling one thing privately, but projecting another in public. And all the critical stuff I'd read about hope seemed to discredit that self-divided approach. But then somehow, those letters from former students seemed to prove that the very thing I'd come to see as flawed had actually worked. That's when I started to understand hope in a third way. When there doesn't seem to be a way forward, but the hope you practice brings others on board in the effort, a path starts to emerge. Lin Yu Tang probably put this best when he said, hope is like a road in the country. There never was a road, but when many people walk on it, the road comes into existence. I think that's where a lot of this confusion gets sorted out. We can get so wrapped up in arguing whether hope is good or bad in itself that we lose sight of what we actually want to achieve. The ultimate goal isn't a world where everyone feels hope, but a world where people take action to solve the problem. Hope is just the means to an end. And there are plenty of other emotions that can be effective in achieving those same ends. Fear can motivate. So can outrage, compassion, obligation. But research shows that hope is in fact effective in spurring action for the very reasons that Lin Yutang and my student letters made clear. Acting, hopefully, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Researchers like Ellen Kelsey and Lisa Kretz show that placing yourself in a state of hope sets in motion a chain of events where the thing we might not initially believe to be attainable becomes possible as people feeling hopeful act hopefully. They write that hope kicks off a cycle that brings to realization the desired state. 
Hope leads to planning, then action, and then an outcome that leads to new cycles of planning, and so on. So instead of seeing hope as the end game, we can think of it as a bridge that allows us to cross over that gulf between the beliefs and actions of today and the possibilities and outcomes for tomorrow. And that's important not just for the individual, but society at large. What I discovered in those messages students wrote six years after we'd worked together was that hope is highly contagious. Again, Lisa Kretz confirms this in her research. Drawing on dozens of psychological and social science studies, she writes, Hope is infectious. Hope is something you can catch from someone else. It can be transmitted or inoculate. Spreading hope provides the psychological underpinnings necessary for positive action. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, hope can be taught. When you consider all these arguments about how emotions move us, it seems like the problem has never been with hope itself, but the fact that hope gets all the good press while other emotions are sidelined. In a society where we put so much emphasis on feeling good, and especially where those with privilege fervently cling to notions about the right to happiness, anything that doesn't feel positive is reflexively discarded. This reflex is a mistake. All of our feelings have a role to play in this strange and wonderful experience of human being. As the poet Rainer Maria Rilke wrote, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Those words also remind us that we can feel multiple emotions at the same time. Pain and hope don't cancel each other out. Emotions aren't an on or off switch, but a complex network with different stimuli and different contexts causing a range of responses from different people. In terms of our climate crisis, whatever pushes someone to take action is a tool we should use. If someone is motivated by fear or outrage at injustice, then let's work with that. But if I had to pick one emotion that we can't do without, my experience suggests that love is far more powerful in motivating us to fight than any other. There is no limit to the lengths that we'll go to protect what we love, even when we don't have hope. When someone you love is terminally ill, you don't stop acting on their behalf just because their situation seems hopeless. You do whatever you can, odds be damned. That's also one of the reasons I continually come back to grief in so much of my work and the reminder to honor dark states as well as uplifting feelings. Grief is by definition a function of love, an expression of our attachment to something we hold dear, while hope is not. You can feel hope without love. I hope there's no traffic on my way home. I hope my team wins or my battery doesn't die. You cannot feel grief without love. That's what grief is. So where does this leave us? What do we do with our hope and love and grief in these dark times? Climate activist Emily Johnson put this question powerfully when she asked, what does it mean to love anyone or anything in a world whose vanishing is accelerating, perhaps beyond our capacity to save the things that we love most? It's a heart-wrenching question, but I think I see the answer all around me. Yes, we're surrounded by loss and we don't even know what's not there to see. The wild creatures, 
the communities, all the abundance and beauty that would still be thriving right outside your door, but was plowed under years before you arrived in this world. But that's never the whole story, and Ellen Kelsey reminds us that looking only at what's broken perpetuates a self-defeating myth that nothing useful has ever been accomplished and that all the work lies ahead. It's a story that paralyzes us at the very moment when we most need to continue that intergenerational work. And so we have to tell the story of what is still here and how that came to be. The trees on your street that were not cut down because someone a generation ago fought to protect them. The whales and marine life that are starting to bounce back because past activists changed the laws. The air and water that is cleaner than it would be the species that have not been driven to extinction because people last century passed legislation to protect them. All that still thrives, all that was not destroyed because someone once loved it. We can be those people to future generations. And that's the answer Johnson gives to her own question about living with loss and finding the courage to act even in a hopeless state. As she writes, we still have the chance to make the space for hope, to act in such a way that hope might exist for others who come after us. <laughs>